Welcome to the New Money Review podcast. I'm Paul Amory, editor of New Money Review. In these turbulent and dangerous markets, the speed of settlement and where your assets are custodied, in other words, how long it takes from the point at which you strike a transaction to the exchange of money and goods, and also where your financial assets are held, these things are now critically important. So I'm delighted to be joined on today's podcast by Alex Backlin, who's funder and CEO at a company called Trustology. Alex was formerly a head of uh, blockchain initiatives and emerging business and technology at the world's leading custodian bank by size, BNY Mellon. Alex, uh, welcome to the New Money Review podcast. Uh, you are the founder and CEO of a company called Trustology, which is a fintech startup that's building a smart crypto custody platform. Before that, you were a global blockchain lead and head of emerging business at technology at BNY Mellon, which I think is the world's largest custodian bank. So let's start by talking about uh, custody. What is custody and why does it matter? Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me here. Um, Real pleasure talking to you. Um, So about custody, I guess it's a really interesting topic. Um, And custody in the crypto space is probably very different to custody in the old world space. In the old world, of course, custody can be anything from physically custodying assets, which is where it all started from, bank vaults and putting physical goods uh, and issuing paper receipts potentially in return. So share, things like share certificates or bond certificates, people 50 years ago would have kept in a vault at their bank and that would have been their custodian. Absolutely. And it's not even just um, back in times to still today. Uh, there are plenty of jurisdictions that still require you to have paper certificates deposited somewhere and then dematerialize in the future kind of so yeah absolutely and then of course golds and gold gold somebody has to store it and most people nowadays buy gold on account uh which is custodied by somebody uh rather than actual physical gold held in their personal possession so custody started off very much physical or either paper um written assets or physical goods and services and then, of course, progressed as e-money emerged and other electronic forms of securities as dematerialization came came to bear. Um, it, so let me just stop you there for, yeah. for listeners. So de- dematerialization is the point in time or a, or a process uh, over the last few decades, I guess, where custodians went from holding things in paper form to actually putting them on a computer ledger. Is that right? Absolutely right. Uh, thank you for correcting that. <laughs> yeah. No, it's, uh, it's, I, I, these terms for me are always very confusing, so I have to make sure I understand them correctly. No, absolutely. No, it's, it's a great point. So, yeah, it's essentially in, uh, kind of saying you no longer keep this on paper record. It's now a date, uh, an entry in a database. Okay. And that, may be, that database may be held by a big bank like the one you used to work for or by a depository, which is a kind of national or, or multinational kind of record of share keeping or bond keeping, is that right? Absolutely, yes. So typically there's a waterfall of holdings. So uh, at the top, uh, usually you have a securities depository. Um, So the biggest in the world, for instance, is the US's DTCC. Um, And they they have the the record of um, how many shares have been issued, say, by IBM or whoever. And then typically they don't deal, they don't have accounts for individuals. They typically have accounts for custodians. So BNY Mellon will be the nominee account, the, the, the name uh, that um, owns um, kind of the assets with DTCC. And then the custodian typically then 
uh, has clients such as broker dealers. Therefore, uh, actually, BNY Mellon still doesn't have the record of the individual potentially who owns that particular uh, sh- share certificate, for instance. They'll only know the broker dealer. And then it's the broker dealer who then finally has the database of uh, who owns that particular individual share. So at least four layers. So you've got DTCC, DTCC in, the, in the United States at the, the kind of the top layer, then the custodian bank, then the broker dealer, and then you and me potentially. Correct. Yeah. So quite. Or if we yeah. if we own an ETF or of investment fund, there may be some more layers between us and and the broker dealer. Absolutely. And of course, it gets a lot more complicated once you have dual listings on different exchanges. So then you have to have, uh, for instance, uh, kind of ability like um, providers like CompuShare um, so they help you to uh, register multiple different exchanges and then of course sometimes uh, foreign investors can find it difficult to uh, to participate in a particular exchange say in the US so there's a whole market now for depository receipts so a custodian essentially holds the securities on their name and then issues a depository receipt for foreign investors so in summary, it's, it's a very complex hierarchy of different intermediaries between the company issuing shares and the holder at Absolutely. the end of the chain. And of course, in each and every time, uh, case, it's really important that the you know, custodian or whoever is looking after certain records has really good record keeping. And today, that translates to essentially having very good IT systems to record stuff. And of course, there's a physical element um, than having good physical storage locations for safekeeping. Okay. Last week, Alex, I had a conference we were both at. Um, you, you were you're on the panel uh, on custody, um, and you said something that I found very interesting. You said custody isn't exciting until it doesn't work when it becomes very exciting. So are we in one of those times where custody has become very exciting? Uh, I think um, possibly, <laughs> yeah. So, um, I think you know, broadly speaking, uh, and there is a reason why I mentioned the fact that it's all about record keeping. But if you think about it, uh, the big risk then is the risk of centralization. If somebody who is the record keeper, be that your local bank, be it, you know, Barclays or custodian like BNY, if uh, they have a lot of resiliency, let's be very clear, first of all, they're very good organizations, but they still ha- happen to be kind of central points of failure. If those um banks uh, go down and lose their records then literally nobody knows who has got what so one of the really interesting things about blockchain because it is decentralized it is extremely resilient because essentially they just you know hundreds of thousands of copies of that database being synchronized all around the world so you can okay, survive. Okay, like Alex, much I want to stop you there for a second because uh, before we get to blockchain, I just wanted to ask you about safekeeping and um, mm-hmm. you know the protection of uh, clients' custody records. Because I mean, you've mentioned that the big custodians do a good job and they're obviously very he- heavily regulated entities. But at the same time, you know, I have to point out to you that uh, the UK regulator has been levying regular fines in the last decade on custodians for for failing to adequately record and protect custody assets. They said that the, the custodians were sometimes using clients' assets for their own purposes. They were taking assets from one client to use from another client. I mean, this seems like repeat behavior by the custodian. So what, you know, what's going wrong? Why, why are there so many of these episodes taking place? 
I think, first of all, to put that into perspective, whilst there are obviously uh, instances of that, if you look at the volume that actually goes right, it's insignificantly, significantly bigger than something that goes wrong. So proportionality is important. But obviously, any situation where uh, kind of there is a uh, kind of discrepancy must be dealt with uh, absolutely thoroughly. So I think the scale of the problem is small compared to the volumes that go through, but any failure, of course, has to be corrected. Um, so, and to be honest, this is just difficult. Uh, the, the number of records that you have to process is huge. Um, and then I think, of course, the, the issue that you brought up is kind of the use of funds. And that's a really important one. Um, because the same- so why is that a particularly important, uh, you, you know, use of funds? Why is that such an important issue yeah. when it comes to custody? Uh, because essentially, you need to understand the risk. Um, so when you put money into your, you know, Barclays or uh, HSBC account, the money is not yours anymore. It's now the bank's money, and it lends it. There is credit risk because if they make bad lending decisions, your money will disappear. You might get some of your money back through the uh, government insurance scheme, but you are at risk against a private corporate entity. Um, so people need to realize that. Typically, the custodian assets, uh, cust- custodians uh, in a pure form, simply safe keep your assets. They don't lend them. They don't do anything. They just keep them safe. That's why most of the time, custodian accounts are not interest-bearing because they're providing a service. They're not making money out of it. Therefore, they have to charge you for safekeeping, just like a safety deposit box would do. Uh, on the other hand, if the custodian starts to lend that money out, um, they're now increasing the risk because now there's potentially credit risk, market risk, all sorts of risks. Uh, and at that point, you're essentially not providing the service you promised to provide because you're offering the lowest possible risk service uh, and then if you're starting to lend it out without knowledge of the client and suitable compensation for the risk they're taking, you're effectively failing to provide the service you promised to offer. Uh, Alex, just to clarify, a lot of the big custodians do lend out the assets held on behalf of their clients to third parties, but presumably after obtaining the client's exactly. uh, permission that they can do that. And they share some of the revenues they earn from from doing that. Exactly. Yep. And it's also the kind of so there's one thing where if you kind of say, look, I don't want you to lend any money, just keep it safe, then that should be honored. If you agree that, uh, for instance, uh, the assets under custody can be loaned to somebody with specific sets of requirements, then that's fine because then there is um, reciprocation in terms of fees and uh, kind of risk reward versus um, uh, kind of safety. So that's absolutely fine as long as it is with the consent of the client. Okay. Yeah, Alex, you're a computer scientist by, by training. Um, you know, Looking at what you have seen over your professional life from the perspective as, uh, of, a, of a scientist, what would you say are the weak points in the current system, the current financial infrastructure? I think um, a number. One is uh, kind of obviously resiliency because uh, the more we come to rely on IT systems as we are d- digital, yeah. Okay. if you look at the coronavirus, it's clear that we want to go more digital to give us remote capabilities and uh, ability to isolate ourselves physically. Uh, but if you have centralization, uh, then you do have risk. Now, there's always a trade-off between efficiencies of centralization and uh, it's kind of a single point of failure, resiliency risks. So there's always a balance to be, uh, and there isn't 
one single perfect answer. But the more decentralization you have, the more resiliency you build up, which is not a bad trade. Um, the other ones, of course, is uh, kind of uh, the question of non-repudiation and integrity guarantees. Um, one simple example, for instance, if you were to submit uh, some transaction to a central database, it's very difficult for either party to prove who made that transaction. Was it the service provider that made up the record? After all, they maintain the database, so they can just change it. Um, but equally, uh, it could have been done by the end user, uh, but then they simply uh, claim it wasn't done so, and they will blame this, uh, the database operator. So both parties cannot ultimately prove who created that transaction. And this is why kind of I got very excited about blockchains because it combines the two key elements. It's the uh, cryptography. Um, by signing transactions with keys that only you possess, you now have this property of non-repudiation. No other party can say it wasn't me because only they could have created that transaction. Uh, and simply integrity as well. So again, you can prove uh, through the digital signatures that that transaction uh, was signed by that individual and has not been manipulated. So, so you're you saying that the block, blockchain, I'd like to come on to that in a, a topic in a, in a few minutes, but blockchain is a, is a, is a basically a, a more resilient and more reliable structure for keeping this kind of information. Exactly that. Yeah. Okay. Before we get to that, I want to ask you about something else you said last week that caught my attention. Um, you talked about the idea of settlement. Now, perhaps you could just, settlement is, um, I think, is distinct from custody. Uh, could you... Could you say you know, why you think settlement is important and why you also said last week uh, that you know, our concept of settlement needs to change, perhaps? Yeah, absolutely. So settlement is very, very simple. In fact, whenever you do payment, you always do formal settlement because if you go into a shop, uh, you hand over, um, let's say you go into a coffee shop and you hand over your three pounds for a cup of coffee or whatever it is you pay for it, you get uh, coffee back. So that's a form of settlement. Uh, you settle cash for coffee. Uh, but the risk there, of course, is you could have sent your cash over and you never get your coffee. Or in reverse, uh, you give your coffee, but you don't pay. So there's always some uh, form of risk um, because one party might have given over uh, kind of their cash or their goods and services and the other party failed to reciprocate on that. So settlement is just a process of making sure that the both sides of the trade uh, coffee for cash or whatever it is uh, is done uh, without you know, either party cheating. And so if you do it face to face, presumably it's uh, unless you're very, you know, as you're a, a fraudster and you know, a good confidence trickster, you presumably face to face, we're relatively protected. You know, we can see that we're exchanging something for something uh, that's you know not too difficult to monitor. Exactly that. Yeah, you know, you can uh, the shop owner can detain you call the police, there are various wounds. But of course, once we start doing more and more things like remote, where this could be delivery of goods uh, or, or purchased over the internet, or actually much more interesting is foreign exchange or purchase of tokens, be those securities, utility tokens, whatever it is, all of that is completely remote. Um, especially as sometimes you might not even know the other counterparties so that you have no idea whether you can trust them or not. Um, so the idea of settlement has been around for a very long time and typically it's been done by the banks uh, and typically in cooperation with uh, kind of payment service providers or FX brokers and so on. 
So for instance, take uh, uh, an exchange. When you swap some money, um, you know, pounds for dollars, for instance, the exchange does actually two things for you typically, or an exchange and a settlement agent. Uh, they they manage the uh, kind of the order books, the buys and the sells. They effectively match you uh, match a seller to a buyer. But once the buyer and the seller agreed on the trade, um, if what you, what happens is typically the trade is novated, meaning that um, the trade is now between the exchange and each individual. The exchange collects the pounds from individual A, the dollars from individual B. And then only sends the uh, the dollars and the pounds the other way once both parties have paid in. So they step into the middle and they guarantee the settlement for both exactly. sides. Exactly. So, but, so settlement in the traditional system always kind of is considered as taking place, you know, at a single point in time and in a single location. So it may be on the books of the bank, it may be at the central bank, it may be at the securities depository. Is that what you were referring to last week when you said that our concepts of settlement need to change in the, in the in a blockchain world? Absolutely. So typically, settlement so far has always been done by some central authority. Yeah. And um, uh, therefore, you have to trust that authority. And the idea has always been that two parties who don't know each other but will trust a known entity like BNY Mellon, therefore, whilst they might not hand over the money to um, the third party, they are more prepared to hand over the money to BNY Mellon, for instance, as an example. Um, but what blockchain has enabled you to do, uh, which is really, really interesting, is that you can create a virtual you know, trusted third party as a smart contract, um, meaning that literally you can, out of thin air, create um, a new virtual entity that can hold money in its own wallet, separate from party A, party B, so separate from counterparties, and will guarantee that the money will only swap when both parties funded the trade in that one contract, uh, which is something we've never had before. We literally can now create a virtual entity that can hold assets on its own record uh, but without having some form of central entity behind it. Okay, so in the blockchain world, uh, settlement is happening across the network itself, itself according to the, the rules of the network. So we don't need a trusted third party at all, or we need some new form of trusted third party? So you don't need a trusted third party in the traditional sense because you don't need an organization that does this. The trusted third party becomes the smart contract, Yeah. So now you need to obviously trust that the uh, two things that they, uh, the the network of transaction verifiers uh, that power those smart contracts um, are there and perform, and of course you need to trust the code of the smart contract to make sure that the code is correct and performs the atomic swaps, uh, which guarantee that both parties uh, kind of. Um, kind of get what they expect to get. Okay, atomic swap is when a swap on one network happens at the same time as a swap on another network. Uh, not just in the same network. Could be, it's just basically if, if I send you my dollars, uh, I expect to get my pounds. And if I don't get my pounds, I get my dollars back. So it's just guaranteed that either everything happens as intended or everything is uh, unrolled. Okay. Okay, and this is something that's technologically uh, uh, possible with blockchain in a way that was not possible before. 
Correct. Because essentially, in order to guarantee that, you have to create a third party that essentially holds money on both ends and then refunds one party or the other if something goes wrong or swaps when uh, both are funded. Um, but now that can all be done as a bit of code that is able to hold assets on their own. Okay. So let's put this in a, maybe a practical example. So you've, you've described earlier in the conversation that in the traditional financial world, when you're talking about the custody of an asset like a share or a bond, there may be many intermediaries between the issuer of the share and the person at the end of the chain who owns the share. What happens then in a blockchain world? Do you, do you, do you shrink that chain completely from you know five or ten entities or maybe even more to, to one entity? Or or is it can we visualize it in, in that way? Or is, it, is that a misleading way? No, not at all. Let's talk through that. Let's say... Uh, for instance, I'm a project and I'm about to launch a new utility token. Yep. So um, this could be a discount token. This could be a file sharing network. And you're launching a utility token to power that network. This is, a, let's say, a new, a new business that's trying to get up and running. And it's using a token to, as part of its business operations Absolutely. to raise money, to, to even to perform whatever, whatever it's doing. Exactly that. So yeah. at that point... Um, you know, before you would have had to potentially talk to DTCC, the custodians, the broker dealers to support your particular asset class. Now you can write a smart contract, uh, typically on Ethereum that's called ERC20 standard, uh, to represent your token. So that's, you know, if you know how to code it, obviously your time is uh, whatever you charge for your time. Um, you can take off the shelf smart contract, about £25 most people sell them and deploy it on blockchain, which will cost you less than a pound. So essentially, you now have a global uh, token uh, that can be used anywhere in the world for probably, you know, sub 100 pounds, depending on your skill set. Right. And if you want to do that through the traditional system, you need an investment bank, a broker dealer, uh, an exchange, probably looking at millions of dollars, I guess. Absolutely. Yeah. So just completely different cost profile. And even then, you still would be uh, limited to the particular geography that the exchange performs in. So if you want to have global reach, you'd have to do it across multiple geographies and multiple exchanges. Okay, this kind of and this is where regulators would typically get, get uh, you know start to get worried and say no, you can't do this. It's uh, you're doing share offerings without registering it properly. Um, uh, so you know, there's some tensions here immediately from where this stands. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's why you have to be careful about um, what what does the token represent? Does it represent a security, public or private security? Or does it represent the utility token, which has a different set of regulations? So absolutely. But again, uh, within that particular token, you can now codify rules about which geographies people can use them in and what kind of a person can use them, so whether you're a sophisticated investor or not. So you can put a lot of business logic in the token to guarantee that only the right people are allowed to use that. And actually, baking that business logic into the token is a lot more efficient and a lot more guaranteed than relying on third parties to enforce those rules. Okay. Uh, so you think regulators should be welcoming blockchain rather than being you know, very necessarily suspicious of it? Absolutely. Yeah, I think it'll give us a lot better control at a much uh, lower point if done right. Okay, so, and where do you think the main efficiencies are? That that, that if you, you know talking globally, where are the uh, you, know, you mentioned cost reduction, what other benefits are there of this new technology? Uh, 
Well, the other thing is kind of, so let's kind of, if we finish the example of once you've issued the token, let's say uh, you want to swap the token for Ether as part of your kind of way of raising capital, for instance. Before, again, you'd have to have a settlement agent. Now you can just write a smart contract that says uh, that has its own address that you can send Ether in the token to. And then the contract stipulates a simple set of conditions. If I receive the correct number of ETH and the, uh, from one party and the correct number of tokens from the other party, then forward the you know, kind of the tokens to party A and forward the ETH um, to uh, party B. If, other, on the other hand, after a certain period, uh, only one party has funded the smart contract but not the other, uh, then the transaction is cancelled and the party is refunded. So now you've effectively automated um, the settlement agent. Okay. So in all of this, uh, the costs are the compression of um, intermediaries, yeah? Yes. And of course, most security settlements, uh, and most settlements still are kind of batch-based. So sometimes it can take as long as four or five days to settle securities. Here, uh, you you know, on Ethereum, for instance, most things are settled within 20, 30 seconds. So you're getting rid of, rid of a lot of the risks in the current system, you know, with one bank maybe doing a billion dollar trade with another bank, and then each of them is waiting four or five days to get their money exchanged for securities. There's a lot of risk involved. And if you multiply that throughout the system, it's potentially huge. Absolutely. I mean, sometimes actually people like the longer settlement day because um, by using uh, kind of clearing systems, uh, and in, um, it can act almost as an intraday credit, uh, meaning that uh, kind of you can do a lot more trades and then only settle um, uh, kind of uh, the the delta, uh, the netted delta at the end of the day, which gives you ability to trade during the day a lot more than the money you have. Alex, we've only got a few minutes left, so I'd like to ask you to just explain a little bit about what Trustology is doing and where you see the particular opportunities in this uh, area of the market. Absolutely. So in terms of Trustology, uh, what we are is what uh, the regulators are now calling the uh, custodial wallet provider, certainly in the EU. Um, essentially, we uh, save up people's private keys, uh, and you need to have private keys in order to perform transactions on blockchain. If you lose your private key, um, then essentially those assets are immovable now and for all intents and purposes are gone. So uh, you need to have the private keys in order to be able to move assets on blockchain. Uh, and then we also help with transaction management. So meaning that you want to, if you want to move uh, and transfer Bitcoin, Ether, or perform any of the kind of uh, more sophisticated operations on uh, networks like Ethereum, uh, then we provide you a very easy way for you to manage those transactions in a safe way. Um, so kind of, if you came from banking world, you call us a key and transaction management system. If you uh, come from the crypto world, you'll call us a custodial wallet provider. But in the end, uh, the end user is able to log into our system, uh, create a um, private public key pair, which we safeguard, create an address, which is an equivalent to a um, bank account, and then we'll be able to transfer assets into uh, that address and out of that address subject to uh, controls like uh, multi-sig controls where multiple people have to approve that transaction, whitelists, time locks, 
and whatever else that needs to do, all within a regulated wrapper because we perform. Okay. And um, what, uh, what segment of the market are you targeting? Institutions, businesses, individuals, or kind of everybody? Uh, we more on the institutional side. So we have both business and individual accounts. And the business accounts typically are popular with funds uh, and other investment firms, uh, as well as with token issuers uh, and uh, brokers and smaller exchanges. And then on the individual account side is the folks who invest in the various different uh, projects that issue tokens um, tend to use our services because it's an easy way for them to uh, kind of keep their assets. Okay, great. Thank you for explaining that. So just to finish, Alex, if you wouldn't mind, uh, you know, could you put in context the, the the shift, the paradigm shift we're seeing, you know, the, from a technological perspective, how big a change uh, and how important a change for society is, is is what's going on in the area of business you're covering? I think it's pretty uh, seismic. I mean, we are massively improving the resiliency and the auditability because essentially we, you know, as a new custodian, we're not custodying assets, we're custodying keys, um, which means, of course, that um, we simply cannot do anything wrong with those keys, uh, as in, sorry, with those assets. Uh, so those questions around uh, integrity, non-repudiation, and questions around how do you f- use funds, we don't hold those funds. We just say keep your keys. Every transaction is signed by the end user. So much safer system, much more re- resilient and global. Um, obviously, there are regulatory issues and so on. But in terms of the tech space, uh, kind of uh, the the technology is global and instantly accessible to anyone in the world, which leads to much bigger global liquidity pools for all of those assets, which is, I think, where the real power is going to be, uh, global liquidity pools versus regional liquidity pools. So, uh, you know, once we get past this uh, current coronavirus panic and concerns about shutting borders, you know, f- capital is going truly global behind the scenes. Yes, I think so. Yeah. Alex, thank you very much for your time. It's been a very interesting chat. Likewise. Thank you for your time. Thank you for listening to this New Money Review podcast. New Money Review is an independent publication and we rely on support from our listeners and readers to survive. If you'd like to support us, you can do so in two ways. On the home page of our site, you'll find our Patreon or Fiat Currency account in the right-hand column, about halfway down the home page. Or you can give us a cryptocurrency donation in either Bitcoin or Ethereum. Our addresses are also on the right side of our home page. Thank you for your support.